Okay. Um, my name is Elizabeth Scala, and I think the title I prefer is Swifty Prof. From Six City Marketing, this is the Prof PodQuest. A journey into higher education innovation, searching for and celebrating game-changing educators. I'm Sarah Shookman. Today on our program, meet Dr. Elizabeth Scala, or as most her fans call her, Swifty Prof. The English literature expert has dedicated a class to the lyrical stylings and songbook of Taylor Swift. Let's get right to it. We're so glad to have you here and get to share a little bit about the inspiration behind the very interesting courses that you do teach and just the trajectory of your career and your research. So thank you for making time for us today. You said the next question is who you teach and what level of student you teach. Do you have a favorite? Do you like the freshmen? Yes, I love the freshmen, actually. Um, They weren't always my favorite students to teach, but now they're definitely my favorite students to teach because they are not jaded, right? They come in, they're very earnest, (laughs) they are very nervous, they want to work hard, they are trying to figure out what it means to be a university student and how not to be a high school student. And they are not really ironic about ev- and, and and superior to everything. So um, they're my they are my favorite group of students to teach. I expect them to know nothing, and they have no pretensions, and they kind of like just come in and they're enthusiastic and they're really a lot of fun. You're a cool, prof. You're you're the one <laughs> making things interesting. Why is that so important to you? Why? create a class like this Taylor Swift songbook? Well, I created the class for a very specific audience. And now that I've done that, of course, I can think of other ways of doing it for different audiences because it's been so popular and so many people um, kind of want a piece of it. But I created the class for freshmen who were just coming to the university Um, and who needed a basic literary skills class, needed a basic research methods class. Um, That second part of the course's purpose has become increasingly more important with a born digital generation who uses their smartphone for everything and doesn't really know that books were printed on paper and that they're located in the library. And there's this like long history. You know, you can't just look everything up on the internet. You just get too much traffic, right? There's too much interference to find good information. And so that research part of the course has become increasingly um, important. It's also increasingly boring and tedious. And so whenever you're going to do something that is potentially boring and tedious, um, you have to find a way to make it interesting. Uh, I first started teaching it as a Harry Potter class. And that, you know, worked, I, I would say, for about, I did it for maybe three or four out of five years, you know, to having taken off a semester or a year, you know, in the middle somewhere. And then I got bored with it. And I was about to do it again. And um, I had been home with my college-age daughter uh, in with the pandemic for a year and a half, listening to a lot of Taylor Swift. And, uh, you know, she's a great lyricist. So you listen to her lyrics and you kind of get into the albums. And then all of a sudden the light bulb went off in my head that, wow, this would make a great version of that very same class. I could do the same things that I do with Harry Potter and British literature, but I could do it with Taylor Swift. And so, you know, that's what I did. And it really, you know, caught major fire, um, helped a lot by Taylor herself, right? Who, uh, you know, decided to 
It was right after the pandemic. She made her first couple of appearances at the Toronto Film Festival. She was getting a lot of um, reaction to the All Too Well film short film. Um, and then announces Midnight's, announces she's going on tour, um, gives us another Taylor's version album. Like, you know, I, I could not have really picked a better time to throw myself into the Taylor verse than I did, but it was really just dumb luck born of the pandemic. <laughs> and you have your daughter to thank for this. As you said, you were listening with her initially. Is she yes. a huge Swifty? And what was your take on Taylor before you did this deep dive? Yes, she's a huge Swifty. Like we call her the OG Swifty in the house, right? <laughs> um, and she is really, uh, you know, lit about this class because when I when I threw that idea out to her, you know, she immediately said, yes, everybody in God will want to get into that class, mom. It will be it will be great. She has been a Swifty since uh, I want to say fearless. I remember both of my girls. She has an older sister who's not really a Swifty. Um, and I remember them being at camp. And, you know, at camp, you could only listen to mu clean, cleaned up music. And they came home from camp that summer with Fearless Memorized. And they were playing it, you know, on an whatever it was, like an iPod, you know, way back when um, in their room. They probably even had the CD. And the little one, Claire, she, um, I think, is exactly 10 years younger than Taylor, right? Born in 99. And so she has lived and breathed Taylor Swift from Fearless to the present. Um, so she's always liked Taylor. And I, you know, I knew the Taylor Swift that came over um, FM radio, right? So I probably knew the songs on 1989 the best. Um, they're the ones I was most familiar with. But of course, I knew the big hits on most of the most of the albums. Um, I did not have the whole discography history in my head. And I certainly didn't have the, you know, um, biographical side of Taylor's writing or any of that really in my head. I mean, I, I really fell in love with the songs on Red when she re-released Red. Um, we, my husband and I, I tell people our gateway album was Lover because Claire, my daughter, was um, the DJ on the Spotify. She was really good while she was home with me for that uh, extended time. She stayed out of college an extra year and I would, you know, cook and hang out in the kitchen with her and we would, um, she would play the music while we played cards or had a glass of wine. And she would, um, she, she picked Lover for us because she thought we would really like it. And we did. And then Taylor dropped Red and I got to um, listen to Red. And that's where I, you know, thought about the poetry reached a new level for sure. I love your gateway album joke and and just the idea that that Claire sort of led you into this journey with the trained mind that you have around literature. What is it about Taylor's songwriting or about I mean and no you mm -hmm. could probably go on for hours about this, but for the sake of the podcast, what is she so good at that pulls people in? Well, you know, what everybody says about Taylor, and it's, and it's not untrue, right, is that she's a great storyteller. And I do think she's a great storyteller. But when we think of great storytellers, we tend to think of novelists, right, who give us pages and pages of sentences in detail. And Taylor Swift is not doing that in a song, right? She's working right. in a much more compressed form. And so I tend to think that um, what people aren't quite acknowledging is that 
Um, she, it's the form of her work that is actually so interesting rather than the particular story. It's that she's able to play with words in such a way that she makes the very few of them that she uses kind of richer and more, um, they pregnant, like they carry more, they carry more weight and more meanings with them. So I always, I teach her like I teach poetry and I talk about, you know, imagery. I talk about like how the bridge works in the songs. I talk about, you know, what changes and what's repeated and how we get this sense that maybe there a complete narrative has gone on and we haven't just been, you know, thinking about one, you know, particular moment in, you know, any given speaker's utterance, which is kind of the way that we think about, we think about um, poetry. And I'm thinking about like the romantic poets, particularly the lyric poets, because they're where our models of poetry come from. But earlier poetry, which is what I tend to work on, is actually narrative poetry, right? It's poetry Hmm. that is, it's longer, it does tell a story, but it does so in verse. And it is a place where my students often pay attention to the plot, but not the way it's given to us. And that's what I'm always trying to teach them how to do. The how we get the story is almost more important than the story itself, because it's where all the implications are and the questions and all of the things that fill out um, what we think the work is about and what it's suggesting, because it can't it can't really say every single thing um, that uh, you, you want it to say, and it's, you know, kind of where we argue about what we think it means and, um, you know, what's important about it. And so I teach Taylor Swift's work formally rather than um, thematically or in terms of the the narratives that she's she's telling. That's so interesting. So you're not talking about John Mayer and things in class. You're just discussing, you know, how did, what word choice mattered here or how did she string this sentence together that gave it power? Yes, definitely. And like, you know, something really simple, um, you know, like any poet, especially an older poet, right? Modern, modern poetry tends not to rhyme and it's kind of busting up old traditional forms, which wouldn't have any meaning if there weren't old traditional forms to bust up. But Taylor Swift is a pretty traditional songwriter and a pretty traditional poet, right? She uses rhyme. um, She uses lots of repetition. So what I always try to tell my students is that it really matters the end rhyme word that she lands on, because that is what is going to be repeated over and over again in in the song. And you can't notice variation until you notice repetition. And so we start with something very basic like that in order to get into the way the song works. So you're right. I try to get them out of her biographical um, surround as quickly as I can because you know, they don't have a, you know, my students don't have a relationship with John Mayer and didn't. So that really can't be what it means. It's what maybe inspired her to write it, but it isn't what the song means. And we talk a lot about, you know, what do we think meaning is? So cool. So cool. What song is a good example of that, that end word, the repetitious word you were mentioning? Oh, wow. Okay. I'm trying to think of um, if we had a class where we really focused on the end, on the end rhyme. That is a hard question. I shouldn't have even brought it up because I don't know that, um, (laughs) I don't even know that we did that. But like one, one 
variant of that that I'm thinking about is we were talking about, you know, I make them, I do this with my Chaucer students too, because the thing I'm always trying to get people to do is to go beyond the way in which we encounter popular culture um, immediately, which is right. The thing, oh, this is, uh, you know, I love this and this, this speaks to me and I, I find it relatable. Um, and I'm like, okay, but, you know, this song might make you feel sad because, you know, mm-hmm. somebody died or something happened to you. And that is, yeah. and I would, I cannot argue with that. That's right. The way it makes you feel is the way it makes you feel. But what do you think about how the song works in a more objective fashion? You know, is something you can argue about, you would, can, you would convince other people about it. It wouldn't just be merely your subjective take. And so I make them count things. I am famous for counting because... Counting is something everybody can do. You can count. Um, They can count when they come in as freshmen. They don't need to know anything. They don't need to know um, about any particular poetic forms. And so we we read the song Clean. And I remember asking them, um, you know, what word is used the most in this song? And now that I'm having this conversation with you, I can't remember what the word is, but it's not clean, which is what you would think it is. Um, and so, you know, I, and I, I think it was a, a kind of like bait and switch because I had done the counting thing previously in an earlier class and one really smart student came and counted in that song. And so then we talked about um, the difference. If I went through my notebook, I'd be able to like kind of pull out, uh, pull out exactly what we, what, what word we hit upon, but it was something weird. Right. And then we talked a lot about. Um, how many different things does clean mean in this song? She's talking about rain. She's talking about getting off drugs. She's talking about getting out of a relationship, right? Like what, what, in what, how does clean work? And, and, um, it is sort of like taking something and multiplying anything in the song. So rhyme, word count, a particular word, taking any one thing in a song and then showing that it itself is, is kind of dimensional. And that it has it that it's working in a number of ways. It has a number of different connotations depending on context. That it changes from one part of the song to the to the next, and not just in a narrative fashion, maybe, but like how something is working in the in the verse. It might be working differently in the chorus. God knows, everything is always working differently in the bridge. The bridge usually takes us somewhere completely new and different. Allows us to repeat tends to allow us to repeat the chorus in a kind of different way. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's an actual grammatical or, you know, vocabulary shift there. Um, And, and by and large, you know, like what you get from this whole conversation is that where my students think they know Taylor Swift really well, and they do, right, because they follow her so intensively, and they, um, they're, they're, they're kind of, uh, living and breathing her biography and what's going on in uh, culture and what she's kind of saying through the songs, they're also finding a kind of artistic verbal depth to her writing that they hadn't been able to articulate before. And that's really what the class is, um, is, seeking, to, is seeking to offer them. I love this idea. It's sort of like the science behind the art in a way. Yes. Yes. That's, I mean, I would, that, that is, um, that is right. Like I, you are, you are dead on accurate before I became an English major in college, which I did very late in life. I was going to be a math major. Um, 
and I was much more interested in science than in the humanities. I, I found I found you know literature really easy, and I I couldn't really see um, what I would do with it. And I thought I was going to go to medical school, so I was like really into the sciences. And when I decided not to go to medical school and kind of transferred over to another major, I didn't luckily didn't have to really declare anything until I I practically graduated. I went to the social sciences, right? Next I went to political science and econ, things that were also yeah. more quantitative. And but what I always loved about medieval literature particularly is that it was really hard because it is English, but it doesn't sound like English, right? It's it's harder than Shakespeare. And so I it made me really think hard about the language and I think that is what I um enjoyed about it. I enjoyed the difficulty. I I enjoyed um like having a language that was mine but not mine. It was like a little harder than just being my language. I had to think about how it worked a little bit more and when I have to teach it to students, you know, they are often freaked out by it because it's Shakespeare even Shakespeare is more and more removed I think from um you know, the curriculum, I look at my, the way my girls went through high school and they really didn't, they, they were assigned Shakespeare, but they didn't read it. They watched it. Mm. They, um, they, they kind of got like the no fear Shakespeare version. I mean, we, <laughs> they have, my kids of course knew Shakespeare because my husband's a Shakespearean. Like they were not going to not read Shakespeare. So they could do yeah, it pretty. It's kind of they, fallen out. It's not the summer it, reading that it it's, used to be. No, we it's kids. not. It's not, but you know, I can get them to be interested in reading Love Story, uh, Romeo and Juliet, because of Love Story, even though theoretically they've read it in high school. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I put that in quotation marks because I'm not sure they're really, really reading um, it. I think they're re they're supposed to read it, and they're either reading a crib or they're, re you know, like watching a version, a movie version of it, which can can also be good, but they're not. Um, they're not reading the texture of that language and the and the wordplay that, you know, Romeo and Juliet is full. And I mean, full of dirty jokes. <laughs> when Romeo is talking <laughs> to his friends, it is it's like one penis joke after the next. That is all they're doing. And and so we talked about like, you know, and it ends in suicide, like. Who is who is teaching this in high school and why? You know, this is such a bad <laughs> right. idea. Right. I think it's really fun for me to, uh, you know, it's like a challenge. Like I know I think they're going to hate it, but I'm going to make them love it, and I'm not going to make them love it just because Taylor Swift uses you know, Romeo and Juliet in this one song in this highly elusive way. Um, I'm going to make them love Romeo and Juliet because I'm going to teach them about the sonnet form and how Shakespeare uses the sonnet form in kind of the way, you know, Taylor Swift is calling back this old literature, that there's some analogy going on here, even though, uh, you know, we're in, we're in very different contexts. And that, that for me is what's fun. And it's also, I think, what's challenging for me. So it keeps me interested in the teaching game. You clearly are a lifelong learner. I want to go back to your bio a bit. Like, how how did you end up? You know, you, you talked about your interests, but how did you end up as a professor? And what do you just love about that ability to to take something new on, like you have mm. with Taylor Swift's songbook? I I think I get bored really easily, and so um, I would never ever have guessed. 
that I would have ended up as a professor. Although I think if you talk to my mother, she would say something like Liz had been playing school her whole life, like set up, set up all of her stuffed animals as students with a blackboard. And I remember doing that as a really, as a really young kid, but um, I never wanted to be a teacher and I had all these other interests. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a detective. I wanted to be a nuclear physicist, right? Like I wanted to do, and I wanted to, I really did want so to go to medical school. There. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I liked, I liked, I loved to read as a child. Um, I loved Nancy Drew. So that's where I think the detective thing mm, came from. I was a big fan of her too. Yeah. Love Nancy Drew. And um, I was a voracious reader. I loved series books where I could read a book and then read another 10, 20 books in the, in the same series. Um, and I don't know. I, I found literature very easy. I didn't, I don't think it was taught especially well. It was sort of like taught in terms of what happened? Did you read the book? And then what do you think about that? Or what, how do you feel about that? And that was it. There was nothing very analytic about it. And I, I did like analytic subjects, which is why I like math, I think. when I, I, finally, I hated it in grade school, but when I finally got to high school and it got difficult, I really loved um, geometry and trigonometry, calculus. I really liked um, more difficult math. And I liked science. I liked anatomy and physiology. So yeah, I was not on this path to being an English professor. And then... Um, I went to college and I went to a small liberal arts college where you were not railroaded into making a decision on your major until you graduated and you just kind of like listed the courses that you took. And if it fulfilled the major, that's what your major, your major was. And so I was always a medieval Renaissance studies major on the side of being a math major, bio major, poli sci major, whatever it was that I thought I was doing for you know, my, a profession. Um, but I always did medieval Renaissance studies because I loved medieval romance and, uh, history. And I could combine that into an interdisciplinary major at, um, I went to Wellesley college in Massachusetts and, um, and then I had this like crisis in the beginning of my senior year when I was confronted with needing to take the LSAT and I, kind of, I was late for the exam. I really didn't want to do it. I didn't want to apply to law school. I was trying to make my parents happy. And I secretly threw all the law school applications in the garbage and pulled like three graduate school um, applications out and decided if I get into a good PhD program in English, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to tell my parents that I'm doing this until it's too late for them to Dust do anything about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's how I ended up um, going to graduate school and wow. knew from the very beginning I wanted to work on Chaucer, went specifically to work with this one professor um, at this school. And I got a lot of help. I will say I got a lot of help at that college from women who, I, you know, had an, a, an Italian professor who was teaching a kind of literature course. And she was also from New York. I think she was also, um, she was, a, she was herself Italian, like I was, and she took a liking to me. She helped me get into the program I wanted to get into, um, you know, and, and then I just kind of kept going, you know, I was like, well, if I can get this degree and a job, I'm going to see if I can do it. And if I can get tenure, I'm going to, you know, stay in this <laughs> profession. And I just, so like, I never really got knocked out of it is kind of the way that I 
I think about it, but, um, you know, I think you're right. I mean, as you're talking, (laughs) talking to me about being a lifetime learner, I have, um, all this Italian homework out on my desk because I decided (laughs) I took Italian for a year in college, my senior year, just for fun. And I decided two months ago that I was going to take conversation Italian online. I kind of do this. I mean, I kind of invent new classes. I invent programs at UT. I take classes. I learn languages. I go places. I get bored very quickly. I love that though, that you've found ways that are very uh, effective and also so interesting to to feed the beast in that way <laughs> and keep learning as you go. I want to ask you, you talked a little bit about like the mentorship you had mm-hmm. in school. How has that impacted you as a professor? How do you work with students now mm-hmm. um, and support them in their interests? I don't come from a place like UT. My, the, I've been to much smaller schools where that intimacy was um, fostered by class size and advising and the dormitories that we lived in, right? We were very yeah. close with our professors. And yeah. so I, I don't like the big, I don't like the big research institution. It is impersonal and you have to like, you really have to find your way. So you have to find all these ways to encourage students, go to your professor's office hours. You're not bothering them. Go ask them for an appointment and just go in there and talk like a human being and tell them, you know, you want to meet them. You'd like to get to know them better. That's, you know, read, read their latest book. It's really easy to, once you tell people how to do it, it's really, really, um, it's really easy to do. I mean, you know this, right? Professors like to talk about themselves. And so (laughs) you read their latest article and you walk in and say, Hey, I loved X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're having coffee. So you've opened the door to conversation. It's really important that they not simply talk to people who already think, think the way not not so much of what they about what they do but in the way that they think so again we're back to this like form and content thing that the the assumptions that you make about the form of what you're working on or the you know the structure of the way that you make arguments and stuff um is is kind of like central it's not simply what you're finding out that that like last little endpoint that you're that you're interested in so I want to bring it back to, to Taylor for a minute. You mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, that your your timing was just um, lucky in a way, but what a summer it's been. And I know from following you on Instagram that you have been to shows. How many shows now? I went to two shows. I okay. saw Taylor in Houston with some of my girlfriends, and then I took Claire and one of her friends to a show in New Jersey. And what's it been like? I mean, everyone, I haven't been personally, couldn't get tickets, but everyone that I know that has gone has just said it, it's worth every penny and a memory for a lifetime. It, it was, is a great, it was a great, great show. And I have to say, like, I was really excited to go with my daughter and we had floor seats. I mean, I was sitting like right Your in front of her mother. I wish I had given her one of my bracelets, but, um, uh, that and that show was really exciting, but the really exciting show was the first one because I saw a pretty early show and I had not combed Instagram, so I didn't really watch any postings of 
the opening. I was just there and in the moment and watched it, you know, for the first time sitting there. And I felt so bad for my friends who went with me and they're not, they like Taylor Swift, but they're not huge Swifties. And I just stood up and sang every single song from start to finish the entire time (laughs) that, I mean, I think they thought I was a little crazy. I, I don't think that that's quite what they expected from me, but it was incredibly exciting and um I can't I, I'm sure this is gonna come out on streaming at some point, right? So yeah. Um I, because so we'll I get to see it. Yes. And she's gonna be thoughtful in that way, right? Like the hysteria over these tickets and how difficult it was to get them and whatnot. Um she knows a lot of her fans didn't get to go. And so there is no way that she isn't putting this up on Disney Plus or Netflix or something. There's going to be a way to see the era's show. Um, And, and she keeps making, you know, it's like a, it's like a Taylor's version album itself, right? She makes it different every time she performs with those secret songs. Now she's adding um, long live from speak now into the set list, right? She's just, she'll just make the show more for every time she does it. So it's, um, I don't know how her voice doesn't give out um, because it's just truly it is astounding to watch her up there. She's doing a costume change like one minute of the show. She leaves the stage. And other than that, she's kind of like there the whole time. And the dancing. I mean, the, yes. the entire. The, yes. It is a spectacle. The way it it's put on and and all of the sets and everybody that is a part of it. And I, I truly feel like it's reached a different level of cultural phenomenon than any other concert. It feels like a Beatles show or something must it's, have felt. It, in the I know. Uh, yes. Like some some you're like, that you're witnessing something that yes. um, right as like a, a, a kind of um, watershed moment. Have you heard from Taylor at all? No, I have not. I wish. <laughs> Fingers crossed. If you had a message for her, what what would it be? Oh, wow. I don't know what I would say to Taylor. Um, I think I would just say, you know, bravo. Well done. I mean, you know, her writing is so, so good. And I would thank her for like you know, giving me this opportunity to um, teach this class and reach these students. And I mean, she's made it easy for me to get them interested and excited about so many things that they didn't think they had the patience for. So it's just, it's just great. Thank you for making learning interesting for all of us and for for encouraging, I'm sure other professors out there as well to think outside the box a little bit. Thank you. You can find out more and follow Dr. Elizabeth Scala on Instagram at Swifty She's even hosting a three-night Taylor Swift songbook mini course online this October, among other events. The Prof PodQuest is produced by Six City Marketing, an SEO and digital marketing agency headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio. Subscribe wherever you find your podcasts so you won't miss our next conversation. Also, if you like the show, leave a review to help others find us too. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Bloxich, Steve DiMatteo, John Salmon, and me, Sarah Shookman. It was edited by John Oyster. 
Our theme music is Clinical Trial by Eric Vargas. Cover art design by Laura Perrin. To learn more, visit SixthCityMarketing.com.